welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 28, English Standard Version Hello, welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. Today, we're moving on in a series we began a few episodes ago called Archaeology and the Bible. Archaeology, as a science, can be very helpful to show an unbelieving world that the Bible is true. The Bible is a book that is firmly set in place and time. It contains a large body of history, and despite the doubts of some, the history contained in the Bible has been shown repeatedly to be reliable. And one way that reliability of the Bible's history has been demonstrated is through archaeological finds and artifacts. So, to help us continue our discussion today in the studio, we have R.D. Fierro, who is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. One of the big points that we are trying to make is that the archaeological finds can be a valuable source of support for the accuracy of the history that the Bible reports. Can you give us an example of that? Absolutely. But before I do that, I'd also like to welcome everyone to Anchor by Truth. Just say hi. We're glad you're here, and we hope that these shows are helpful to you, your understanding of the Bible, and that they will encourage you to develop your own habit of reading the Bible every day, getting into the Word of God so the Word of God can inspire and direct your life as it does ours. You know, most people who have read the Bible know that the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles are historical books. They describe the history of the nation of Israel after the period of the Judges ended. As a quick refresher, just about everyone knows that at one time the Hebrews lived in Egypt for a period of hundreds of years. Then around 1445 BC, plus or minus a few years, Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt. After a period of 40 years of wandering in the desert, the Hebrews finally entered Palestine and displaced many of the Canaanites who had been living there. Well, for the first 400 or so years after they entered Palestine, the Hebrews lived in a loose confederation of tribal states under a succession of judges. And the book of Judges in the Bible describes this time period. But around 1100 BC, Saul was anointed king and the Hebrews lived in a monarchical system for the next 500 years or so. Under Saul, David, and David's son Solomon, Israel had a united kingdom. But after Solomon died, the kingdom split into the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Yes. Well, chapter 17 of the book of 1 Samuel describes the epic encounter between David and Goliath. And that encounter took place in the valley of Elah, which is very near the boundary between the territories of the Philistines and the ancient Hebrews, today's Israel. Well, today there is a site near the Valley of Ella called Kirbet Kiafa, 
which is the site of an ancient fortress city that overlooks that valley. It's about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem and about 7 miles from Goliath's hometown of Gath. Now, since 2007, excavations by Yosef Garfinkel of the Hebrew University and Saar Gaynor of the Israel Antiquities Authority have unearthed quite a large number of artifacts at Kiafa. And one of the artifacts that they found was a jar with the name Eshbal on it. Well, Eshbal was one of the sons of Saul. First Chronicles chapter 8, verse 33 says, and quoting, Ner became the father of Kish, and Kish became the father of Saul, and Saul became the father of Jonathan, and Malkishua, and Abinadab, and Eshbal. And what is interesting is that Garfinkel has dated that find to about the time that Saul would have been the king. But you're not asserting that this jar actually belonged to Saul's son, are you? No, but what the find does point out is that the name Eshbal was in use in that time period. Furthermore, Garfinkel thinks that it is very likely that the evidence at that site is indicative of a strong central government and a stronger nation at that point in history than has been commonly thought. And part of the reason that the archaeologists, the excavators, think that is because they found out that the city at that site had two gates. Now, according to an article on PatternsofEvidence.com, quote, this has caused them to propose that the site was the biblical Sharem, which means in Hebrew, quote, two gates. And this settlement and fortress is also mentioned as being very near the site of the David versus Goliath confrontation in the Bible's account, close quote. Well, let's go look at the English Standard Version of 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 52. That verse says, quote, And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. Close quotes. We'll put a link to that article in the notes that accompany the podcast version of this episode. So the archaeologic finds are entirely consistent with the biblical record of the encounter between David and Goliath, and they are consistent with the timing and location of the encounter. As we've said before, this does not rise to the level of conclusive proof, but it does mean that there is evidence that what the Bible says about the confrontation between the Philistines and the Hebrews and the fight between David and Goliath has significant historical support. Right, and that's a good lead-in to what I want to talk about today. You know, names and titles tend to change through history. They tend to change with the times, and they certainly vary from nation to nation and culture to culture. So, if we find out that a writer uses names and titles correctly, that the use is consistent with the time, place, and surroundings, then we can have confidence that what the writer has been reporting is accurate. For instance, at one time, Elsie was a very common woman's name in America, and Horatio was a common man's name. Horatio Alger was one of the best-known authors of the late 19th century, but you never hear of parents naming their children Elsie or Horatio today. So, if you see those names, you can be pretty sure that they weren't born in the late 20th century or the 21st century. Same thing is true with titles. In England, the highest governmental executive officer is called the Prime Minister. In America, the title President is used. So if a writer were to write an account and call an American officeholder the Prime Minister, we could be reasonably sure that some, if not most, of their account was inaccurate. 
In ancient Egypt, the ruler was called Pharaoh. In Rome, before Julius Caesar came to power, the leaders of the Roman government were called consuls. After Julius Caesar made himself dictator, most of the men who succeeded him also went by the title Caesar. We could date the reign of Roman rulers at least somewhat by what title applied. Names and titles tend to be location, time, and culturally dependent. Right. So let's take a look at a specific example of a Bible account that gets even obscure titles right. In 701 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was threatened by the Assyrian Empire under the Assyrian king named Sennacherib. Sennacherib is a name found in at least three books of the Bible, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. Sennacherib began to reign around 710 BC, and even though he only reigned a few years, he was prominent in the Bible because of his threats to the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah at the time, had freed Judah from the Assyrians. As a consequence, Sennacherib marched an army against him and took all the strong cities of Judah except Jerusalem. Hezekiah realized the predicament he was in and sent ambassadors with tribute to Sennacherib, who at the time was besieging and destroying another city in Judah. Sennacherib accepted his tribute, but refused to depart, and he sent some of his senior officials with an insulting message to Jerusalem. Hezekiah then prayed to the Lord, who sent a destroying angel against the Assyrian army and killed 185,000 of the Assyrians in one night. Sennacherib then retreated to his capital city of Nineveh. But two or three years after his return from Jerusalem, he was murdered by two of his sons. Right. And all of that history is contained in the Bible. But the Bible's account, not surprisingly, has been confirmed by records that were found in the ruins of the ancient city of Nineveh. The ruins of Nineveh are in a mound called Koyunjik, which is outside the modern city of Mosul, Iraq. And that mound has been explored and excavated quite a bit. And the excavation uncovered the remains of a huge palace of the type that would have been built by powerful kings. Well, inside this palace are huge stone tablets which form the walls of the various apartments in the palace. And these tablets are covered with base reliefs and inscriptions. And while, of course, there's been some degradation and damage over time, large portions of those tablets remain intact. And the fragments that remain are very important. One of the series of tablets recounts the exploits of King Sennacherib. And Sennacherib in these tablets calls himself, quote, the subduer of kings from the upper sea of the setting sun to the lower sea of the rising sun, close quote. In our language, that would basically mean he was saying he was king of everything from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf. For those of us who are interested in the Bible, the most important of these mural pages recount the history of Sennacherib's war against Syria and the Jews in the third year of his reign. In his campaign region, he fought with an Egyptian army sent to help King Hezekiah. Sennacherib defeated the Egyptians and conquered a number of cities in Judah. One inscription on a tablet says, quote, Hezekiah, king of Judah, who had not submitted to my authority, 46 of his principal cities and the fortresses and villages dependent upon them, of which I took no account, I captured and carried away their spoil. The fortified towns and the rest of his towns which I spoiled, I severed from his country 
and gave to the kings of Ashkelon, Urkron, and Gaza, as so to make his country small. In addition to the former tribute imposed upon their countries, I added a tribute, the nature of which I fixed. Unquote. So, it's really important to note that in this boast, Sennacherib does not claim to have conquered Jerusalem itself. Now, he claims to have carried away Hezekiah's family, servants, and treasures, and received a tribute of 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver. Well, the amount of gold that Sennacherib mentions in his boast is exactly the same as the amount recorded in the Bible narrative. Now, the amount of silver claimed by Sennacherib differs from the amount that's reported in Scripture. Scripture just mentions 300 talents of silver, not 800. But it's very possible that Hezekiah, the king of Judah, gave Sennacherib 300 talents of silver because that was all the silver money that he had. And the additional 500 talents of silver claimed in the Ninevite record probably includes the temple and palace treasures that Hezekiah also gave to Sennacherib when he tried to buy him off. The Bible describes these events this way, quote, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish, quote, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria extracted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. Unquote. That's 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13 through 16 from the New International Version. You know, it's very interesting that the Bible doesn't record Hezekiah seeking help from the Lord until Jerusalem itself was threatened. Well, not only is that interesting, but I think it points out something very important. From archaeological records and artifacts, we can learn a lot about what happened in history. But it's only from the Bible that we can see the interactions between God and his people. Now, of course, it's very important to have confidence that the history in the Bible is accurate, and it is, but it's just or maybe more important to know what God wants us to learn from that history. You know, Hezekiah and Judah endured a lot of loss before Hezekiah finally sent some of his court officials to the prophet Isaiah to ask the Lord for help. 2 Kings chapters 19 verses 5 through 7 say, quote, When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword, unquote. Then, in verses 32 and 33, the Lord tells Hezekiah through Isaiah, quote, He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, unquote. Now, those quotes are from the New International Version. And see, that's a great lesson for us all. At one point, the southern nation of Judah was subject to the dominion of the Assyrian Empire. 
Hezekiah's father, named Ahaz, had put them in that position because Ahaz had asked the Assyrians to help him against a confederation that was threatening him. And that confederation was composed of the kings from the northern nation Israel and from one of the neighboring states, Aram. Well, the Bible tells us that Ahaz was a very wicked and ungodly king. He was so wicked that he even practiced child sacrifice. And so rather than seeking help from the Lord, Ahaz looked to the wicked pagan power of Assyria for help for his country of Judah. Well, he got the help, but the help he got resulted in Judah, the southern kingdom, being subject to the Assyrian Empire. But unlike his wicked father, the Bible tells us that Hezekiah was a righteous king. Hezekiah led a reformation within Judah, and eventually Hezekiah was able to achieve a measure of independence for Judah. The Bible tells us that for 14 years of Hezekiah's reign, the Assyrians did not attack. But then this new Assyrian king, Sennacherib, ascended the throne, and he appears to have resented the fact that Judah had broken away. So he attacked Judah. And despite the fact that Hezekiah was a very good king, he apparently did not seek the Lord's help until the Assyrian campaign had progressed quite a bit. And that may be because in the years after Hezekiah assumed the throne and before the Assyrians attacked him, Hezekiah appears to have formed a relationship or perhaps an alliance with the countries of Egypt and Ethiopia. And Hezekiah may have been counting on these earthly alliances to support him more than his heavenly father. And again, that's a lesson for us. You know, it's sometimes said we need to make prayer our first response and not our last resort. Well, in Hezekiah's case, at least on this occasion, he appears to have made an appeal to the Lord as his last resort because he didn't send his court officials to Isaiah until Sennacherib had conquered much of Judah and was actually threatening the city of Jerusalem. I think a lot of us are like that, even many Christians. We think God is there, or at least we hope he is, but when troubles come our way, we almost behave as if he wasn't. We try to handle our problems using our own resources, strength, and plans. All too often, we don't immediately go to prayer and start petitioning the Lord for Him to intercede. And, all too often, we certainly have been consulting with the Lord before we got into trouble to ask Him what we should be doing. That might have kept us out of trouble to begin with. Well, I think that part of the reason that we permit ourselves to get into trouble is because we haven't studied the Bible enough to see how God has dealt with his people throughout history. And that's a serious weakness in the faith of the modern church. The modern church has so often tried to build its faith on what we think the Bible says, what somebody else has told us the Bible says, and not on what the Bible actually does say. You know, I'm persuaded that a large part of the reason that we treat our faith this way is because too many Christians aren't really persuaded that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. At least that's what the surveys are telling us. Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Books collaborate every two years and do surveys to determine what they call the state of theology. One of the statements they test is, quote, The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true, In 2014, only 41% of adult Americans agreed with that statement. In 2022, 53% of adults agreed with that statement. That's an alarming trend. So just think about that for just a second. 
Less than half of the adult Americans today think that the Bible is literally true. And I don't know for sure what that percentage would have been when I was a kid in the 1960s, but I suspect the percentage of people in those days who would have said the Bible is literally true would have been 70% or maybe even 80%. Well, part of the reason that the percentage of adult Americans who believe the Bible is literally true is so small is because the Bible has been under an unrelenting assault for three or four decades now. And that's why seemingly arcane details about archaeology are important, because these details help us assure ourselves, first and foremost, that the Bible is true. And then they help us be able to convey that truth to other people. You know, we're not going to rely on our faith if we're not confident in our faith. And we're not going to be confident in our faith if we don't have the full assurance that the written source of our faith, the Bible, is true. An assured faith is a faith that will turn to God in trouble, and frankly, will turn to God before trouble arise. And a faith like that is far more likely to please God than a faith that is built only on secondhand knowledge. So let's turn back to one final example today of how the Bible has been validated by archaeology. We heard in our opening scripture that it was not the king of Assyria that spoke directly to the residents of Jerusalem in making his threats, but one of his designated officials. And as we mentioned at the start of our episode, getting the names and titles right when reporting history gives us confidence the writer was reporting things accurately. Well, archaeology has validated the biblical terms used for the Assyrian officials who confronted Hezekiah. Right. Well, at that time, Sennacherib himself was at the Judean city of Lachish. And from Lachish, Sennacherib sent some of his high-ranking men, together with a delegation from his army, down to Jerusalem. And there they presented a message to Hezekiah as a means of trying to intimidate Hezekiah. And the three Assyrian officers who brought Sennacherib's message are listed as, quote, the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh. That's listed in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. Well, up until the ruins of Nineveh were explored, these Assyrian titles were obscure and they puzzled Bible commentators. But once Nineveh was unearthed, all three of those terms for the titles of Assyrian high officials have been found in the ancient Assyrian records. The Assyrian records mention that Tartan was a senior military commander who was second in rank only to the king. And they also mentioned that the Rabshakeh was a slightly lower rank, and that title possibly means, quote, chief of princes. And then the Rabsaris was another of the king's close officials, possibly the king's chief eunuch, and his presence was confirmed in a small contract document. And while we don't know everything about the exact duties performed by these officers, The preservation of their titles is one of many examples where the details in scripture, though otherwise lost from secular history, have been verified by archaeological discoveries. Right. Now let's remember what we heard from the opening scripture when we heard that the chief spokesman for the Assyrians when they threatened Jerusalem was the Rabshakeh, who was a slightly lower officer in rank. It was not the military commander himself. Well, you know, that is very similar to what we see in today's governments, where announcements, communications, are often made by a designated spokesman, not the actual leader. Think about what we see from the press briefings that are conducted in the White House or the Pentagon. And it is interesting to hear that the spokesman for the Assyrians was like a lot of political spokesmen today, 
He didn't just confine himself to asking the Hebrews to surrender. Instead, he couldn't help but do some boasting. He actually said, quote, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, quote, The Lord will deliver us, unquote. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered this land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Unquote. That's Second Kings chapter 18, selected verses from 28 through 33. But the Lord did deliver Jerusalem from the hands of the Assyrians. They made a big mistake when they exhibited disdain for the Almighty God. They treated the Almighty, everlasting God, as if he were just one of the other gods, who were not gods at all, but just idols made by human hands. That was not smart. And just as Isaiah had prophesied, Sennacherib never conquered Jerusalem and was murdered a short while later. Right. Sennacherib and the Assyrians were like all people who oppose the Lord. They may enjoy some earthly success for a while, but they are long-term losers. Less than a hundred years after the Assyrians threatened Jerusalem, the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians. And as we've discussed elsewhere in this series, the Assyrians disappeared so completely from history that for 2,000 years, nobody even knew where Nineveh, their capital, once stood. But Hezekiah and the people who trusted in the Lord survived. And so the details of this encounter show the precision and reliability of the biblical record. And you know, it's one thing for records, like in the Bible, to get the big names and titles right. I mean, people remember the names of famous kings or queens and the titles of the main ruler. But it's another thing when the writers get the titles of lesser officials right. That's what happened in Kings and Chronicles. That demonstrates an attention to detail and a concern for accuracy that will give us confidence that the Bible's record of history is true. And that's why it's easy to show that the various criticisms are just wrong. And that is what we wanted to point out in this episode and in the series. Archaeological discoveries have reportedly supported the history contained in the Bible. And when they supposedly don't, when purportedly a discovery shows how the Bible is wrong, we need to stop and think. As we discussed in a previous episode in this series, we need to examine the worldview and axioms of the group making the discovery and their need to research and consider the biblical alternative. All archaeologists look at evidence in present and try to determine what it says about the past. Quite often, we find out the Bible had it right the whole time. This sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our communities and nations would repent of our departure from the worship of the one true God. The God that saved Hezekiah and the Hebrews from the Assyrians still rules today, and he will still help all those who turn in trust to him. Prayer for Restoration of the Worship of the One True God Lord of Destiny, God of Holiness, you ordained the fate of men and nations before the cornerstone of creation was laid. You were blameless in all your acts and commands, and therefore what you ordain must come to pass. Who among men can resist your will? What you sovereignly declare will happen. 
We rejoice that our hope rests in the power and mercy of an almighty God and not in lesser beings. Lord, you know far better than we the blight that has come upon this nation. We have turned from honoring your name and seeking your will to self-exaltation and celebrating our rebellion. We cannot imagine how this must grieve you and give you justifiable cause for rebuke and reproof. We pray that you would raise up in our midst godly men and women who will be the leaders and teachers in a national renewal. We know that you have preserved a faithful remnant for yourself because you have assured us that the gates of hell could not prevail against your church. We praise you that Christ Jesus himself makes intercession for us while he sits at your right hand. We praise him and offer this and all prayers in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also, or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S.com. Thank you for your support.